You can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. That's where we are. As we... As we've gone through the book of Mark, we kind of started with John the Baptist um, in, in his baptism of Jesus at the very beginning of our series in Mark that we did. So it's, it's, it's kind of fitting now that uh, we're here at this point with another kind of bookend about John the Baptist because after this week, we're going to switch gears for the summer. We're going to go to a new series on the life of Abraham. So this will be our last message in the book of Mark for at least a little while, at least for the summer. And so here we are, we find ourselves at, at John the Baptist again. So uh, somewhat appropriate, nice symmetry there. Um, so Mark chapter six, starting at verse 14, and we'll go through verse 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus's name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Lost my place there. For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came and immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head and he went and beheaded him in the prison and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a, there's a book that the officers and I have been reading together by a man named Andy Crouch, and the name of the book is Strong and Weak, uh, and it's just been a, a, just a great book about leadership and, and what leadership looks like, especially within the context of the Christian life and in the church. And uh, in that book, he tells the story of a little girl named Angela, um, who I believe is, is his niece, is Andy Crouch's niece. 
But Angela has this very rare disorder that they, they knew immediately when she, was, when she was born that something was wrong. She has this very rare uh, developmental and physical disorder that causes her to have just profound disabilities. I mean, just profound disabilities. In fact, most of the children who, who have this disorder die before they are born. They die in the womb, actually. And then half of those who are actually born die within the first week of their life. And so this is very scary, very serious uh, stuff. And, and as of, I just want you to know, as of the publication of the book, I'm not sure what year the book was published in, but Angela was alive and she was 11 years old and, and doing far better, obviously, than anyone ever thought she could. But this, and this turned out to be true, the doctors explained to her parents that because of these disorder, this disorder, she would, she would never see or hear in any meaningful way. Uh, and though, though she does respond to voices and to touch uh, in some ways, she, and as she has grown, she has just sort of grown into this inner world, uh, this unknowable world that just she herself inhabits. Um, and, and she can't walk, she can't talk, she can't do any of those things for herself. And, and really what that boils down to in her life is that she, she has absolutely no ability to care for herself in any meaningful capacity, feeding, bathing, walking, talking. And, and Andy Crouch kind of tells that story. And then he asks this question, which I think is really interesting. Uh, is Angela flourishing? Is Angela's life not just worth living, but flourishing in some way? And so that kind of begs the question for us, which is, what does that mean? What is, what is true flourishing? And as we look at this text, and as we look at this story, like I confess I came to it going, I, I really don't know what to do with this. As we look at John and Herod, John and Herod, these two men kind of stand as two representatives of two kingdoms and two types of authority. And, and one of those kingdoms is a kingdom of death. But one of those kingdoms is a kingdom of life. So let's we'll look at, at Herod and the kingdom of death and then John and the kingdom of life. And as we look at Herod and the kingdom of death, I want us to put two kind of sub points under there. One is the death of a man and then the death of a conscience. And then under the second point, John and the kingdom of life, let's put two sub points. And those sub points are uh, authority in the kingdom of life and vulnerability in the kingdom of life. So first of all, let's start off. Let's look at Herod and the kingdom of death and the death of, the, of this man, John. And as our story goes, and as we've been learning and following along in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has just sent out the 12 uh, to, to go and, and as extensions of his ministry, they're going and doing ministry in his name as ones especially sent forth as his apostles. And the last, like I think verse 13 of Mark says, they did many miraculous things and they cast out demons and they healed many. So in other words, he sent them out on a successful mission and, and word had started to spread and word has been spreading about Jesus and his disciples and all of the things that, that they are doing. 
And often, as is often the case, those who are in positions of power and authority are oftentimes kind of late to the party on these sorts of spiritual movements that are going on within the lands that they, they rule and govern. So finally, Jesus has caught the attention of Herod Antipas, uh, the Herod that is in view here. And, and Herod begins to look for explanations about who this Jesus is and why and how he has the ability to do the things that he has to do and the authority that he has. And in verse 14, it says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name has become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. And it's like that kind of triggers Herod a little bit. And he has this, the, the story of, of John the Baptist beheading is told in a flashback, in almost, in a, in a sense. And, and before we kind of get into that, the, the thing you have to know, you have to know a little bit about the Herodians and that family, because this Herod isn't the Herod that was in power when Jesus was born. And the, the Herodian family is kind of like, if you took Game of Thrones and mashed it up with Macbeth and then set it all to the music of Ray Stevens, like I'm my own grandpa, like that's, that's who the Herodians are. So Herod the Great was the Herod that was in view, was, that was in power in the time of Jesus' birth. He's the Herod of the, the Christmas story, right? He had 10 wives, and naturally he had a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of sons. And so he divided his kingdom up into four parts, and one of those parts, the part of Galilee, fell to Herod Antipas, who is the Herod in our story this morning, Right? So kind of following with me so far, right? So Herod Antipas married Herodias, who is the daughter of Herod Antipas's half-brother, okay? So he married his niece, basically. Um, but <laughs> before Herod Antipas married her, she was the wife of Herod's Herod Antipas's other brother, Philip. So not only did he marry his niece, but he stole his niece away from his brother, Philip, and married his brother, Philip's wife, okay? So that's, that's the, the people that we're dealing with here. That's what's going on in, in this story, in, the, in, in, in what you might call the family tree, um, the family wreath, perhaps, I don't know. Um, so... On top of that, it was Herodias's daughter uh, who danced, Herodias's daughter by Philip, who danced for the men at the birthday party that we're going to talk about a little bit later. So setting the stage for you, that's why Herodias had Herod arrest John the Baptist. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. She wanted him dead because John the Baptist was basically spreading this message around about what is lawful for them to do. And of course, John the Baptist was right. Uh, but something held Herod back. Something held him back from doing this. Verse 20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. That there's, 
there's guilt and fear that judgment is coming because of what he did to John the Baptist. That's when our story opens, that's what's going on in Herod Antipas's heart. That there is this fear of judgment for having beheaded John the Baptist. And in verse 15, people come and try to offer other explanations about where Jesus gets his powers. And maybe he's Elijah, come again. Maybe he is a great prophet, um, just like we used to have in the Old Testament. But in verse 16, when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded has been raised. So he can't get this thought out of his head. And in fact, if you look at that, that sentence there in the Greek, it's, it's emphatic. Herod says, John, whom I, yeah, I, me, I had him beheaded. So there's this, this kind of profound sense of fear and judgment and guilt going on in Herod's heart. And so now we have this flashback to the actual incident of John's beheading at the birthday party. This, this kind of uh, Herodian first century guy's night lock-in, right? Which just proves my point as a former youth pastor, nothing good ever happens at lock-ins. Um, and so here comes Herodias's daughter, again, Herod's, which she is also Herod's niece, dancing for these men. And God, this dance, this dance is exactly what you think it is. Um, it is not the royal ballet that is going on. This is a young girl, uh, probably even a teenager, dancing for the enjoyment of men. And so you can kind of understand the, the, the atmosphere of what this birthday party is and was. And she pleases the guests with her dancing so much so that Herod wants to reward her for her performance. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, this was kind of a common saying at the time. She knew that she wasn't to take that literally. She couldn't get half of his kingdom, but it just meant that I'm going to give you a really great gift. What do you want? And she says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. No, like when she goes to her mom and says, hey, I get a wish. What do I wish for? Uh, her mom says, John the Baptist's head. That would, be, that would be great. But it's this young girl who adds the, f- the flourishing touch to the, of the silver platter on this thing. And so this, this twist of the silver platter. And immediately it says, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. That's what the kingdom of death is. That's that's life in the kingdom of death. In the kingdom of death, righteousness must not be allowed to exist. So that's the death of a man. Let's look deeper now at the death of a conscience. Because there seems to be, there does seem to be this, kind of, this faint sort of glimmer of hope going on in Herod. Like there's this, this kind of just almost, there's something there. And you want to you wanna know more about what's, what's there. Because, because first Herod shields John the Baptist from Herodias. She just wants to arrest him and kill him. And, and Herod won't let her. So, so he shields John the Baptist from his wife's desire to kill him. Because like 
in some way, there's this relationship between Herod and John, and we don't really know exactly what it is that's going on, but Herod likes John the Baptist in some way. In verse 20, it says, when, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, meaning his heart was all kinds of conflicted. Like he just didn't know what to make of John the Baptist. He didn't know what to do with him. He, he didn't like the things he was hearing, but at the same time, he liked the things that he was hearing because it says, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod gladly listened to John the Baptist. Like, Given the picture that we just painted of, of what Herod's life was like and the debauchery that he lived in and the, the lifestyle that he lived, this is, this is more than fascinating, right? Because, because even though we know, we don't know what he said, we, we know kind of who John is, right? John has never been one in the scriptures to mince words. This is the guy that calls the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, right? This is the guy who has no fear, who is bold with his proclamations of the truth. So we have to, to think, and we know that what John had been saying to Herod was, hey, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so we know that, that those messages that Herod heard gladly had to be confrontational. There had to be some sort of confrontation going on. Uh, verse 26, it says, after Herod had John killed, it says he was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner. We can kind of see the... The, the bifurcation of Herod's heart, even in this one passage, this perplexed nature of Herod, right? Because he is exceedingly sorry. And the words there are only used one other time in the New Testament. These words ex- for exceeding sorrow are used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there's a deep sense of the depth of Herod's uh, sorrow over doing this thing. And yet like, he immediately sent the executioner to go and do it. It's almost like he didn't hesitate. It's almost like, uh, he, he did this thing. I, I think, and I wonder if like we're witnessing here, the death, like the death of a conscience, even a, a deformed and, and warped sort of conscience, because in the kingdom of death, the fear of man rules. The fear of man rules all. And if Herod had begun to become alive to the things of God through John's teaching, and, and then he, without really any hesitation, sends the executioner to bring this gruesome gift to this young girl, like, what a tragedy. We should be exceedingly sorrowful over that in someone else's heart. And furthermore, we should be exceedingly sorrowful over it in our own hearts. We should look to our own hearts and examine our own hearts in light of, of the, the, what, is, what is possible in our sin and weakness. Beware. Beware of hardening your own heart. Beware of hardening your own conscience against sin and instead fill your hearts with God's word, fill your hearts with his truth, fill your hearts with the gratitude that comes from acknowledging and naming and recognizing his blessings in your life. 
Don't harden your own hearts, soften your own hearts with prayers of, of faith and, and leaning on his grace and mercy daily for what you need and what we need. Don't worry about what others think and what others say. Run away, run, run, run away from the kingdom of death and run instead towards the kingdom of life. So that's Herod in the kingdom of death, the death of the man John and the death of Herod's conscience. Let's, let's go further and look at John and the kingdom of life. And let's look at authority in the kingdom of life. Because, because the man John, let's kind of like for just a second sort of hold up these two guys and, and compare them in some ways. Um, the man John could not have been more different than, than Herod. That, that there, here is Herod in all of his comfort and finery and, and, and palaces and, and fluffy pillows and silks and all of this. And where does John live? He lives in the desert, right? What does John wear? He wears camel hair. So even on the outside, I mean, there, there could not be more difference. Herod is the, the very picture of a debauched lifestyle. He's a very picture of, of man when he gets everything that he wants and he can do whatever he wants. A man's, man's lusts and man's passions and man's appetites virtually without limit. And here is John who lives in, in a humble way, in a true and sincere way, but in a righteous way, in, in, a, in a way that, that submits himself to God's law as best as he can. So Herod is the picture of debauchery while John is the picture of righteousness. Herod lives in fear of others' opinions. He, he did what he did to John the Baptist because of his own standing in front of the leaders of Galilee that were gathered around him. He didn't want them to think badly of himself because he made a vow and then went back on it. And even though he knew that his vow was rash and wicked and that it shouldn't be carried out. Herod in his fear of others' opinions versus this courageous, faithful teaching and preaching of John the Baptist in his message of truth. John represented a different kingdom than Herod. Couldn't be more different. And John had an authority that trumped even Herod's will. Verses 19 to 20, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. So it's almost like, on the one hand, John's, John's, uh, it was John's righteousness and, and adherence to the truth and boldness in the truth that landed him in jail in the first place. But on the other hand, it, it's John's righteousness and authority that, that keeps him safe. Well, John's message to Herod, again, was, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And, and the thing that made that message authoritative is that John spoke not from his own authority, but that John spoke from, from God's law and God's, uh, God's um, holy standard, right? In the kingdom of life, God's law wakes our hearts up 
to our need of a righteousness that is not our own. That John's life work is to make straight the path of the Messiah. That that is his mission. And, and even before the powerful but broken men like Herod, that is still John's mission. That is still John's calling. That is still his work. And, and he does that with Herod in this incident by holding up to Herod the mirror of God's law. So that, that Herod looks into God's law, this very simple command, you, you don't have your brother's wife. By doing that, he is giving Herod the gracious opportunity to turn and repent. Look guys, grace and the gospel doesn't always come in nice, easy to hear packages, in nice, easy to hear messages. Sometimes and oftentimes, probably all the time, grace ought to come as a confrontation to your sin. That there is a confrontational nature to the gospel. But what he is really doing here by delivering this message to Herod is that he is showing Herod the doorway out of the kingdom of death and into the kingdom of life. So let me ask this question of us and just know, as I ask this question, I'm asking this question of myself too. Where is the sin that you refuse to see or don't want to be shown? What is it? Where is the sin that you refuse to see or or, or don't want to be shown What sin is it that when you are confronted with the truth of it, your inner defense attorney is on the job and the excuses started coming and the rationalizations start coming and the justifications start coming? What sin is that? Because here's the glorious truth. In the kingdom of life, there is never any danger of asking God to confront you with that sin. Selfishness, greed, materialism, idolatry, lust, anger. This week, the sin that has been confronting my heart is the sin of white supremacy, of racism. The reason there is no fear in the kingdom of life and having your heart confronted with the truth of your sin is that we are set free from that sin. That repentance and forgiveness is available in the kingdom of life. The kingdom of life is a kingdom of grace founded on the authoritative act of the cross. The kingdom of life, in the kingdom of life, the king of the kingdom died to free the subjects of the kingdom from our slavery to sin. Therefore, we can look into our hearts. We can look into our own hearts and and not fear to find sin because sin's power has been broken. 
And we are set free by the blood of Jesus. That's the authority of the kingdom of life. Let's look at vulnerability in the kingdom of life. John comes to the table at Herod's prison bearing the authority of the message of grace, but obviously he also bears the vulnerability. He also bears this weakness that that his mission and his message involves a great deal of risk. And in fact, we find out that that risk came to, to be. But John takes his authoritative message with its invitation to repentance and redemption, he takes it longing to see this sort of half alive conscience of King Herod fully alive. And John willingly engages with Herod, uh, even imprisoned under this threat of death, John engages with him. It says of Herod, he was greatly perplexed and he heard, yet he heard him gladly like John, like I take that to imply that John must have gladly engaged with Herod, that, that it's hard to gladly receive a message that is delivered in bitterness and anger and hostility, right? In the kingdom of life, our weakness and vulnerability is turned into strength by God's grace. I thought of this passage, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 7 through 12. Um, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal bodies. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Remember Angela, remember the the little girl that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon? by all accounts, by all outward measures and appearances, the kingdom of death seems to be reigning in that circumstance. The, the death seems to be at work within her. The kingdom of death seems to be reigning supreme because, because where is her ability to act or to do or to say anything in any meaningful way in the world? Th- this profoundly broken, blind, death, immobile child kind of locked in her own inner world. There seems to be all vulnerability and no authority there with with no way for anyone else to kind of break into her world and to do anything meaningful. And the question was, is Angela flourishing? And the truth is that Angela is a part of a flourishing kingdom of life not because she herself has much in the way of independence or capacity for self-expression or ability to even set a simple goal and try to reach it or anything, anything like that. But she's a part of the flourishing kingdom of life because she has been made the object of love by those around her. 
And through the love of others, she has become more of what she was created to be. That as others serve her and care for her, what little interactions are possible for her become authoritative acts in the world as they're heard and interpreted by the people around her. That she has become the means others have become more of what they were created to be. That she is actually the vehicle of other people's flourishing as they serve and care for her by by other people taking on the risk and the discomfort and the indignity of caring for another broken human body. The kingdom of life flourishes not only in Angela, but in the people around her who have made Angela the object of their love. Jesus, the king of the kingdom of life, was born with more authority, more capacity for meaningful action in the world than any other person that was ever born before him or since. And yet, he took on vulnerability, more vulnerability than most people do might even say more vulnerability than anybody else, that he suffered a horrific death. And that death here is foreshadowed by John the Baptist. I mean, the last verse of this, uh, if that doesn't kind of set you back, send you back to, or forward actually in our story, to the, the, the cross and the tomb, they laid John the Baptist's body in a tomb. If that doesn't send you back to Easter, Right? He suffered this death that is foreshadowed by John the Baptist, of which Herod played a part in both. That through his willingly taking on this vulnerability, we, his people, become more of who we were created to be. That like Angela, apart from Jesus, we have no ability to to change our condition, that we are blind and deaf and mute to our sin and we can't see it, we won't hear it, we dare not even speak of it. What sin, again, does that describe in you? Reflect on that given the events of the last week. Like Angela, We become our true selves only through the love of another. Because of the love of Jesus, you can name that sin. You need not fear owning that sin. Because of the love of Jesus, you need not fear uh, being identified by that sin because in Christ, your identity is him. It's not your sin. He can heal you. He can heal what sin is broken. Like Angela, we, we cannot earn that love. And the best part is, it's freely given. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may we be brokenhearted over our sin, 
Would you, by your Spirit's power, reveal to us our sin, even those we dare not name? Give us the courage to face them, not because that courage lives within us, but because we know the truth of the gospel, which is that 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 sin, even that sin has been dealt with and no longer is held against us by the power of the cross, by this authoritative act of redemption in the world that you accomplished by your life. That by a life of vulnerability, you gained for us what we could never gain for ourselves, which is mercy and forgiveness and grace and reconciliation with a holy God. Lord, open us to the, the truth of the kingdom of life in which we are invited by Jesus. Draw us deeper in and further into this glorious kingdom that you, you call us to. Even as we look around and are grieved by what we see in the world in so many ways, remind us and encourage us that one day the kingdom of life will come in its fullness that one day the king of life will reign supreme in a place where heaven and earth are one. And until that day, Lord, equip your people, help your people, call your people to repentance and to be agents of justice and change in the world. Call your people to live out the gospel that we so desperately need. Call your people to represent you and the hope that you bring to a broken and fallen world. And we pray that you would do this for your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.